We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Arizona, Colorado, Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey, Tennessee, and Virginia. WinBet is now live in all of these states, and the excitement of Win Las Vegas has finally landed in online sports betting and casino play. From boosted parlays to live in-game offs on every major sport, WinBet gives you the tools to win. Sign up today for your risk-free $1,000 sports bet. Download the WinBet app now or visit wynnbet.com to start winning. Away we go, episode 195 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Friday, November 26th, 2021. It is Black Friday, 2021, and I mean nothing racial by that. Uh, it is the day after Thanksgiving 2021, a Thanksgiving on which the Dallas Cowboys lost. As Jimmy Johnson said many years ago, how about them Cowboys? How about them Cowboys? Yeah! Yes, Jimmy. How about them? A 36-33 home overtime loss to the Las Vegas Raiders. A parade of penalties that happened to include some football being played. Each team finishing with 14 accepted penalties. The two teams combined for 28 accepted penalties for 276 yards. In your life, have you ever seen a flag-filled affair quite like the one that we saw between the Raiders and the Cowboys on Thanksgiving? But what has happened to the Cowboys on Thanksgiving? This was the third consecutive year in which they lost on Thanksgiving, including, of course, a 41-16 Washington football team win at Dallas on Thanksgiving 2020. And speaking of that team that we currently call the Washington football team, it is now just two and a half games behind the Cowboys for first in the NFC East. The Cowboys are seven and four. Washington is four and six. A division that seemed done now is anything but, especially considering that Washington still has 
five NFC East games remaining. Each of Washington's last five games this regular season will be an NFC East game. Reason for hope and optimism right now if you're a Washington football team fan. Well, I hope that you had a nice Thanksgiving. I had a nice Thanksgiving. Didn't start off so nice. Uh, I got my COVID-19 vaccine booster on Wednesday afternoon. Yes, I received the booster on Wednesday afternoon. And the exact same thing that happened after my second vaccine shot happened after this shot. I was fine. And then like 12 hours later, the onslaught began. The chills, the achiness. I was in rough shape, but I overcame. I persevered and I was fine by like 2 p.m. on Thanksgiving. That's when we did our Thanksgiving meal. We do early Thanksgiving meals. As many of you know, that's what you do uh, when you have a four-year-old son and a one-year-old daughter. 2 p.m. is like 6 p.m. anyway. But, you know, I asked the woman who gave me the COVID-19 vaccine booster on Wednesday afternoon, so do you think that we're going to need any more shots for this oh-so-wonderful thing called COVID-19 beyond this booster? And she was like, heck yeah. And she asked me what I thought. And I said, well, you know, I hope not, but I tend to think that you're probably right. So we're now up to three shots for COVID-19. What is the final number going to be? And will the final number of COVID-19 shots that we ultimately need be greater than, less than, or the same as the number of wins for the Washington football team this season? That's my question. Which number will be higher. Shots ultimately that we need for COVID-19 or wins for the Washington football team this season. You can discuss amongst yourselves. Well, I am here with a show for this Friday after Thanksgiving. My intention actually was not to do a full show, but what I have ended up doing is a full show. So there's a lot on this show. I could not help myself. Uh, I have a lot for you on the Washington football team as it prepares for its game against the Seattle Seahawks at FedEx Field this Monday night at 8.15 on Monday Night Football. Good stuff from both Ron Rivera and Taylor Heineke at their post-practice press conferences on Wednesday, including Ron on how he, at the end of this season, will know if Heineke could be a franchise quarterback for Washington. And Heineke, on his height and on him being to blame for some of these recent sacks, we'll get to all of that and more next segment. Uh, I want to spend some time on Washington's improved defense, especially the secondary. The secondary was so bad over the first eight games of the season, has been so much better during this two-game winning streak. We'll get into the why. Uh, I have a special guest for you, Washington football team analyst Nathan Coleman of Full Press Coverage Washington, which is an outlet dedicated to coverage of the Washington football team. Nate is one of the best people out there in terms of talking Washington football team and analytics. He understands football analytics like very few people do, has a lot of good opinions on the Washington football team. So we'll give you an in-depth discussion of the WFT from an analytics perspective. Uh, I do have Goldilocks for you, my picks against the spreads for the major college football teams in the region. I'll give you picks for Maryland at Rutgers, Virginia Tech at Virginia, and Navy at Temple as this college football week 13 is the final full week of the regular season. Will the Terrapins get to six wins? Will Virginia put Virginia Tech out of its misery? Huge weekend for the Capitals. Two very big games. I'll get you set for those and review the Caps' 6-3 win over the Montreal Canadiens at Capital One Arena on Wednesday night. I'll give you a Wizards segment. Uh, they have two games this weekend, but they, unlike the Caps, looked awful on Wednesday night, a 127-102 loss at the lowly New Orleans Pelicans. Head coach Wes Unsell Jr. cussed out the team 
Uh, we got to get into all of that. And we have college basketball to discuss. Games for Maryland and Georgetown on Thanksgiving night for the Terrapins. Another comeback win, 86-80 win over Richmond in the Bahamas. For the Hoyas, an ugly loss, 73-56 loss to San Diego State in Anaheim, California. In a game that started close to midnight on Thanksgiving night. But you see, I am here for you to discuss that and all of these other things. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Uh, thank you to everyone for all of the nice feedback to my conversation with Taylor Heineke's collegiate head coach, former Old Dominion head coach Bobby Wilder on Wednesday's show, episode 194. Coach Wilder was terrific. Tremendous insight on Heineke. Uh, definitely check out that interview if you haven't already. A tweet from DW. Coach Wilder basically said Heineke is a more likable Kirk Cousins. I'll take it. Uh, well, DW, I don't know that Coach Wilder said that, but to me, that is the realistic best-case scenario with Taylor Heineke, that he becomes a Kirk Cousins-level quarterback. Now, they're two very different quarterbacks. I'm just talking about the level of quarterback. All jokes and sensitivities aside, because anytime that I bring up Kirk Cousins, some people get very nervous and agitated, but Kirk, if we're being objective, is a top 15 quarterback in the NFL. Is that fair? Top 15. Sometimes he's better, sometimes he's worse, but generally speaking, he's a top 15 quarterback in the NFL. Now, this season, old Kirky is better than top 15. This season, Kirk is a top 10 quarterback, but that's another conversation. But to me, the realistic best case scenario with Taylor Heineke is him being a top 15 quarterback in the NFL. Now, I'm not saying that he'll definitely be a top 15 quarterback in the NFL. I'm not even saying that it's likely that he'll be a top 15 quarterback in the NFL. But as things stand right now, that to me is the realistic best case scenario. And while top 15 isn't elite, you can win with a top 15 quarterback. You can make postseasons with a top 15 quarterback. You can win postseason games with a top 15 quarterback. Email from John Weiss on Diami Brown. Writes John, I've been loving your podcast lately. Keep up the good work. Well, thank you, John. Continues, John. I have a question that I would love to hear your thoughts on, and that pertains to Diami Brown. Coming into the season, it seemed like there was quite a bit of hype and optimism surrounding him. Parentheses, what's new for the WFT? From what I have seen, his play on the field is somewhat reminiscent of another recent WFT receiver, and it's not a good one, Josh Doxon. Granted, Diami is a rookie and was not a first-round pick like Josh, but Diami seems to have similar characteristics to Josh. Unable to create separation, poor ball handling, and a failure to attack the ball at times. To top it off, he seems to have trouble staying on the field. Again, very similar to Josh. Am I overreacting? Are you seeing the same thing? Does the team still think highly of him? Whatever the team supposedly saw in the offseason and in practices doesn't appear to be translating on the field. All the best, John. Uh, thank you, John. Good topic. Yeah, this has been an underwhelming rookie season for Diami Brown, at least so far. He has played in eight games. He has eight receptions. Mm, that's not ideal. Uh, eight receptions for 81 yards and on 20 targets, eight catches on 20 targets. That works out to a catch percentage of 40, which is not good. Uh, Diami Brown was supposed to bring speed to Washington's receiving core, but the speed has not translated 
into any true big plays. You're right. He isn't separating. He isn't making catches. And now he's not even playing that much. Have you been tracking this? Deami Brown in the win at the Carolina Panthers last Sunday afternoon played on just nine of Washington's offensive snaps. He in his two games since coming back from a one-game absence caused by a knee injury has played on a total of just 17 offensive snaps. I'm not going to write the guy off. He was a third-round pick, but this so far has been a disappointing rookie season for Deami Brown. I don't know how you say it any other way. It reminds me of Antonio Gandy-Golden's 2020 rookie season. Now, his rookie season was ruined more by injury. Uh, AGG in his 2020 rookie season was on the reserve injured list for more than two months due to a hamstring injury. But AGG, like Diami, was a highly touted non-first-round rookie. And AGG had a disappointing rookie season like Diami is having. And Washington, remember, released AGG in the cut down to 53. Did bring him back to the practice squad. And he is now on the 53-man roster. Washington on October 23rd announced the signing of Antonio Gandy-Golden from the practice squad to the active roster. He had been elevated from the practice squad to the active roster for each of the previous two games. But, you know, aside from Terry McLaurin and maybe Jamison Crowder, and Crowder's a maybe, but he did have two good seasons here, 2015 and 2016, Washington has a terrible history of drafting receivers over the last 40 years, okay? I mean, the history is brutal. You go back year by year, draft by draft, Washington just has not hit on receivers. Most of Washington's good receivers over the last 40 years are guys who Washington traded for, signed as free agents, or in the case of Gary Clark, got from the USFL. Uh, Ricky Sanders came over from the USFL as well, although technically Ricky was drafted by the New England Patriots out of the USFL and then Washington traded for Ricky Sanders. We'll see what happens long term with Curtis Samuel with Washington, but the team really could use one or more of its drafted receivers, or in the case of Cam Sims, an undrafted receiver, to become a consistent, reliable threat. You know, Deami Brown, Antonio Gandy-Golden, Cam Sims, Dax Milne, I mean, if not for DeAndre Carter and I guess to a lesser extent, Adam Humphreys, what would Washington have this season in terms of some kind of a receiver compliment to Terry McLaurin? Got to see some growth from these Washington receivers. Well, do you own, run, or work at a business that you want to grow? Do you want to reel in new customers for your business? Do you want to spread awareness of your business? Do you want to set up a website for your business but don't know where to start? Well, you can put ImageWorks to work for you. ImageWorks is a full-service boutique web design, branding, and marketing company. ImageWorks is located in Washington, D.C. at Northern Virginia, but serves the entire country. So if you're listening in, say, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, New York, Florida, even California, ImageWorks can help you. For more than two decades, ImageWorks has stood for creating great brands and providing custom marketing solutions. But ImageWorks is more than a branding and marketing firm. ImageWorks is your collaborative partner, your one-stop shop for business growth. ImageWorks clients range from startups and small and mid-sized businesses to global enterprises and government contractors. ImageWorks has a complete team of in-house designers, marketers, developers, art directors, strategists, and writers. You can put any or all of them to work for you by calling 703-378-0000 or by going to imageworkscreative.com and clicking on contact near the upper right corner. When you call or contact, make sure that you mention the Al Galdi podcast because doing so will get you a free homepage search engine optimization 
and conversion review. That phone number again is 703-378-0000 or go to imageworkscreative.com and click on contact near the upper right corner and make sure that you mention the Al Galdi podcast. Imageworks, creative minds focused on one goal, your business success. All right, so we, of course, have a a bit of a wait until the Washington football team's next game. Four and six Washington, in the midst of its first winning streak of the season, will face the three and seven Seattle Seahawks at FedEx Field this Monday night on Monday Night Football. For the record, I hate when Washington plays on Monday nights. I hate having to wait all weekend and then all day Monday for Washington's game to say nothing of Washington's horrendous history on Monday Night Football in the Dan Snyder era, especially in Monday night games at FedEx Field. Washington, incredibly, is 2-17 and 17 all-time at FedEx Field on Monday night football. 2-17. and 17. That is absurd. Uh, anyway, Washington practiced on Wednesday and Thursday. Uh, next segment, I'll talk Washington defense. Right now, we talk Washington offense. There was no injury report for Wednesday because the game against the Seahawks is not until Monday night. But there was injury news for Washington on Wednesday, and the news was good news. Washington on Wednesday announced the return of Logan Thomas to practice, giving the team 21 days to activate him off the reserve injured list. Uh, Logan has been on the reserve injured list since October 6th due to a hamstring injury that was suffered in the win at the Atlanta Falcons in week four. So good news there. I mean, no guarantee that Logan Thomas will play against the Seahawks at FedEx Field on Monday night, but there is at least some hope, and that hope is needed because Ricky Seals-Jones did not practice on Thursday due to that hip injury that he suffered in the win over the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at FedEx Field in Week 10. Uh, Ricky Seals-Jones was inactive for that win at the Carolina Panthers last Sunday afternoon. Two other Washington players did not practice on Thursday, and they were both offensive linemen. Samuel Cosme did not practice on Thursday due to the hip injury that he suffered in the win at the Panthers. And Tyler Larson did not practice on Thursday due to the knee injury that he suffered in the win at the Panthers. We did not have any post-practice press conferences on Thursday due to it being Thanksgiving, but we did have post-practice press conferences on Wednesday, including those for Ron Rivera and Taylor Heineke. So Ron has indicated that Washington's franchise quarterback could currently be on the team's roster. And thus, Ron on Wednesday was asked how he, at the end of Washington's season, will know if Taylor Heineke could be a franchise quarterback for Washington. Well, you know, we'll see. I mean, again, it, like I said, it could be on the roster, it could be in the draft, it could be in free agency. But we have to, we have to identify who we believe it can be. You know, we've been trying to, you know, search that out and feel that out for the last year and a half now. And as we go through this, there are certain things that we are looking for. Obviously, leadership is a big part of it. Um, understanding grasp of what we're doing, how, you know, we want to attack and understanding how to attack the opponent. Um, and then having the intangibles. You know, one of the things that, that has been really cool and, 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 you know, just again from last year's perspective, you saw certain elements when Alex Smith got into the huddle early on for us. You know, when, when, when Kyle 
Kyle Allen first got his opportunity, the way he responded. Now with Taylor, it's the same thing. You're seeing this 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 type of rapport that's being built. Um, but again, it's got to be consistent too. That's the other thing. You know, we haven't been consistent. We weren't consistent last year until Alex got his opportunity. Now we have a chance to see if we can get consistent uh, under uh, un, uh, you know under Taylor. And and again, you know, we're not making any decisions until everything is done this year. Until we get a chance to really go back, vet what we saw from this past season, look at what's available, you know, coming out for agency, look at what's in the draft. You know, we, we've got a lot of work to do. We really do. Yeah, that to me was a very smart, logical, and acceptable answer from Ron Rivera on Taylor Heineke potentially being a franchise quarterback for Washington. Now, Ron was complimentary of Heineke, but Ron committed to nothing with Heineke, nor should Ron commit to anything with Heineke. As Ron said, quote, we're not making any decisions until everything's done this year, end quote. 100%. That's exactly the way to be viewing things with Taylor Heineke as Washington's QB1 beyond this season. Nothing is definite. Nothing. And that more than a few Washington fans and more than a few people in the media won't even take that stance, a stance of wait and see, remains bizarre to me. Like, if you don't think that Taylor Heineke is going to be more than just a backup quarterback in the NFL, fine, you might be right about that. But to have, like, zero open mind to the possibility that he's more than that, especially given the way that he's played over these last two games and has played in other games during his time with Washington, I just don't I just don't get that. How the Taylor Heineke deniers, the Taylor Heineke haters... The Tay-Tay haters, the Taters, can be so sure about this guy. I'll never know, uh, but whatever. I like that answer from Ron Rivera on Wednesday. Taylor Heineke, as I said, did a post-practice press conference on Wednesday. I thought that this was interesting from Heineke. Him on his height. So Taylor Heineke, as you may know, is not an extremely tall quarterback. Although if you listen to the Taters, uh, you'd think that Heineke is like four foot three, okay? You'd think that Heineke is uh, Bushwick Bill from Ghetto Boys. Uh, Washington lists Taylor Heineke as being 6'1". Washington on Monday night, of course, will be facing one of the more successful quote-unquote short quarterbacks in NFL history and Russell Wilson. The Seahawks list him as being just 5'11". Heineke on Wednesday on whether he feels as if his height has held him back as an NFL quarterback. I never really thought about it. Um, it's something I really can't control. Um, so I just try to get it done with what I got. So, um, you know, a lot. the biggest thing for me throughout the years, being a short quarterback, is just arm angle stuff. You really got to be on top of the ball and get the ball over those, those guys, you know, heads. So um, I'll say that's the biggest adjustment that I've had to make. Yeah, I tell you, one of the bigger lessons in recent NFL history regarding quarterbacks is that height doesn't matter nearly as much as some people have thought. Russell Wilson, right, listed as being 5'11". The now-retired Drew Brees of the New Orleans Saints was listed as being six feet tall. The Arizona Cardinals list Kyler Murray as being 5'10". Height really doesn't matter so long as you have a repertoire of arm angles and you're good at finding throwing lanes. Now, is it better to be tall than short? Yes. Would you rather your quarterback be 6'4 than 5'10? Of course. But height does not doom you, just like lack of supreme arm strength does not doom you. Here was something else from Heineke on Wednesday that stood out to me. Him taking ownership of his sacks. So Washington has this two-game winning streak despite Taylor Heineke having been sacked eight times over the two games. 
And as I have talked about on this podcast, and as Ron Rivera said during his postgame press conference after the win at the Panthers, and then again during his day after the game Zoom press conference on Monday, a decent amount of these sacks are on Heineke. Well, Heineke on Wednesday owned up to that. This during his response to a question about how Washington's offensive line is doing for him this season. Uh, awesome. Um, I think all year they've done a great job. Um, you know, if you look at the stats, there might be some sacks in there that are, are definitely my fault, um, whether that's trying to make a bigger play or just not getting the ball out in time. Um, so I don't think that stat really demonstrates how well they've been playing, but they've done a, a fantastic job. Uh, Great job by Heineke of taking ownership of the sacks. Quote, there might be some sacks in there that are definitely my fault, end quote. That's what a quarterback should do. Praise his offensive line and blame himself. You know, that's being a good teammate. That's being a leader. And in this case, that's telling the truth. We came to know all too well uh, quarterbacks who did not like to take blame, who did not like to point the finger uh, at themselves. Uh, Robert Griffin III was guilty of not taking blame. Kirk Cousins was guilty of not taking blame. Do you remember the famous phrase from Kirk when he said that he was dealing with <laughs> trash at his feet? Yeah, I just felt some trash at my feet. Yeah, I'll never forget that from old Kirky. I just felt some trash at my feet, i.e. I was being pressured because the offensive line wasn't doing a good enough job. I just felt some trash at my feet. Yeah, that's an all-timer from Kirk. I just felt some trash at my feet. Oh, Kirky, we miss you. At least I do. But yeah, I loved Heineke on Wednesday taking ownership of some of the recent sacks. Here was Heineke on Wednesday on some of these recent sacks that have been on him. I think it's a combination of a lot of things. Um, You know, throughout the weeks, you keep hearing you want Taylor to play like himself a little bit more. And that's what I've been trying to do, which kind of extend plays. But sometimes that's... Me kind of getting out of the pocket, and I just need to throw the ball away instead of taking a, you know, half yard sack to a five yard sack. Um, but again, you know, you kind of live with it because um, I feel like some good plays kind of happen from from those situations. So um, you know, there's some give and take there. Yeah, and Heineke is totally right about what he said there. Look, many mobile quarterbacks end up taking a lot of sacks because of those quarterbacks' penchants for extending plays. Uh, look no further than the quarterback with whom Heineke will be dueling this Monday night, Russell Wilson. Uh, Russell has been sacked a ton in his career. Russell Wilson's career regular season sack percentage is 8.4. That's really high. Uh, Russell Wilson has been sacked at least 41 times in each of the last eight regular seasons, 2013 through 2020. Uh, Heineke's sack percentage this regular season is 6.3. Uh, Sack percentage is simply sacks taken divided by pass attempts plus sacks taken. Does not include scrambles, uh, which is a flaw in the stat. So with Washington's offensive line, as I talked about on Wednesday's show, episode 194, Washington's offensive line this season has been terrific. Despite dealing with so much in the way of injury, Washington's offensive line rates as one of the best in the NFL. You could argue rates as the best in the NFL. Washington through week 11 was number one in the NFL and ESPN's team run block win rate at 77% at number four in the NFL and ESPN's team pass block win rate at 67%. Uh, Washington through week 11 was number one in the NFL in power success rate for football outsiders at 82%. Power success rate is the percentage of successful third and fourth down runs requiring no more than two yards for first down 
or a touchdown. Rod Rivera on Wednesday on why the offensive line has been so good despite all of the injury issues. Well, I think a lot of it has to do with the way they work. They've got tremendous work ethic um, as a group. You know, they, they're, they're a very close-knit group. Um, I really do appreciate the coaching um, that those guys get as well. Not that all the other positions aren't being coached up well. It's just the, the offensive line is a completely different mentality. It's a different way of, of, of thinking. Uh, one thing i got to give credit to, obviously, is, is our has been our personnel. And, and we had the same thing last year. You know, we made a conscientious effort of, of trying to keep at least – you know, 12, 13, 14, 15 guys around, you know. We may have had nine or ten on, on active, but we had somewhere around four, five, or six guys on practice squad at a time. I think right now we're at um, 15 total offensive linemen, and I think right now we have nine on active and six on practice. I think that's what the number is. I might be a little wrong on that, but that's one thing we've done consciously. So it's a good group of guys. There's a lot of guys that are getting practice reps, a lot of guys that are getting reps on the side. Post practice right now, I know I know Coach Wharton has that young group of guys, um, you know, going through some little extra little extra walkthrough stuff. So, um, you know, for that group, just the way they do things has been really good. But I think you know, again, credit goes to 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 the personnel. You know, last year was the same thing. Yes, it was. Perhaps no Washington offensive lineman this season has been better than left tackle Charles Leno Jr. He was released by the Chicago Bears on May third. Washington signed him. As an unrestricted free agent on May 15th, he is the only Washington player who has played on every single Washington offensive snap this season. And Leno has been terrific. Leno through week 11 was number three among all qualified tackles in the NFL in ESPN's pass block win rate at 94%. Not bad. Thank you, Chicago Bears. Uh, Ron Rivera on Wednesday on Charles Leno Jr. You know, he's progressed very well within our scheme, and, and he's a guy that works at it. He's, he's got a little bit of that leadership ability, but it's, it's like he really doesn't want to take the mantles, but you can see when the way he practices, the way he works with his teammates. I think he and he, Eric have a real good combination, uh, a real good rapport with one another. Uh, he's done a very, very good job. He was very physical this past week. I mean, when you you know look at what happened and look the way he played I mean it, it was it was pretty solid um, it was very solid actually and but he's been consistent like that all year and like I said there, there really hasn't been a lot of mention of him so that's a good thing that's a really good thing yes it is and you heard Ron mention Washington's left guard Eric Flowers he has been really good this season too Flowers through week 11 was number seven among qualified guards in the NFL in ESPN's pass block win rate at 95%. So even if Washington for this Monday night's game against the Seahawks at FedEx Field is back to being without Samuel Cosby due to this hip injury, is without uh, the man who is Washington's, remember, second string center in Tyler Larson due to a knee injury, you still feel like this Washington offensive line will be okay. Washington has continued to find ways this season to get quality offensive line play despite the injury issues. Uh, the offensive line coach, John Matsko, and these Washington offensive linemen have really done great jobs so far this season. Up next, I'm talking Washington football team defense, including a look at the biggest reason for the defense's improved play during the two-game winning streak, the secondary being better. I'll get to that and much more after this. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. 
Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. My conversation with Washington football team analyst Nathan Coleman of Full Press Coverage Washington is coming up next segment. You will get great insight on the Washington football team from an analytics perspective. But right now, let's talk Washington defense in preparation for Monday night's game against the Seattle Seahawks at FedEx Field. There were 11 players listed on Washington's injury report for Thursday. Just two of the players were defensive players. Uh, Cole Holcomb was a limited participant in practice due to a shoulder, and Shaka Tony was a limited participant in practice due to the concussion that had him as inactive for the win at the Carolina Panthers last Sunday afternoon. So while you can't say that Washington's defense is extremely healthy, right? I mean, you do have your top two edge rushers on the reserve injured list in Chase Young and Montez Sweat. It is true that Washington's defense, at least from a standpoint of players on the active roster, continues to be quite healthy. And Washington's defense, of course, has been much better during this ongoing two-game winning streak. The defense's two best games of the season by far have been these last two games, the 29-19 win over the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at FedEx Field in Week 10 and the 27-21 win at the Carolina Panthers in Week 11. Will this Washington defense make it three consecutive good performances with what happens in this game against the Seahawks at FedEx Field on Monday Night Football. Well, the Seahawks are a bad offensive team right now. The Seahawks are 3-7. and seven. The Seahawks have totaled just 13 points over the team's last two games, a 17-0 loss at the Green Bay Packers in Week 10 and a 23-13 home loss to the Arizona Cardinals in Week 11. Now, the Seahawks do have decent offensive rankings per Football Outsiders DVOA metric. Uh, the Seahawks through Week 11 were 12th in the NFL in passing offense and 13th in the NFL in rushing offense. But the Seahawks have been horrendous on third downs this season. The Seahawks through week 11 were 30th out of 32 NFL teams in third down efficiency at 32.4%. The Seahawks franchise quarterback, Russell Wilson, missed three consecutive games due to what were called, quote, severe injuries, end quote, 
to the middle finger of his right hand, which is his throwing hand. Uh, He has been back for two games now, but he over those two games has no touchdown passes versus two interceptions and has completed just 34 of 66 pass attempts. That works out to a completion percentage of 51.52. That's atrocious. So Washington would seem to be catching this Seahawks offense at a good time. No Washington defensive player has been better this season than Jonathan Allen. Here he was at his post-practice press conference on Wednesday on why Washington's defense has been so much better over these last two games. Just guys playing together. You're not seeing silly mistakes. You're not seeing, you know, two guys in one gap or a lot of miscommunication. You know, it takes time to play with guys. And the longer you play with them, the more you understand where they're going to be at, how they like to play, how they like to fit. And I think the longer the season goes on, the better we're going to, the better we have been playing together. And I think it's showing, you know, teams aren't getting these wide open guys running downfield or teams aren't sitting there and having these wide holes that, you know, because you ended up with two defense linemen in the same gap. So when we talk about cohesion, this is really talking about guys playing well together as a unit. Yeah, there does seem to be a lot more cohesion on Washington's defense right now. That's a big part of why the defense has had its best two games of the season, despite being without the team's top two edge rushers, right? Washington has been without Montez Sweat for all of the last two games and has been without Chase Young for most of the last two games. Now, you heard Jonathan Allen mention that Washington hasn't been allowing as many guys running wide open downfield as had been happening. Uh, That's a major improvement from what we were seeing from this defense in September and October. And in fact, Washington has steadily climbed up into now being one of the better teams in the NFL at preventing explosive passing plays. Yeah, I know that sounds ridiculous, but it's true. So Sharp Football Analysis is the site run by NFL analytics pioneer Warren Sharp. Sharp football analysis tracks explosive plays, defines an explosive passing play as one that goes for at least 20 yards. Washington, per sharp football analysis through week 11, was 12th in the NFL in lowest explosive passing play rate allowed at 8.12%. 31 explosive passing plays allowed over 382 passing plays for sharp football analysis. Rod Rivera at his post-practice press conference on Wednesday on Washington having done a much better job of preventing explosive passing plays lately. Well, I think we talked about it earlier um, uh, about the fact that it looks like the rush and the coverage are in sync a little bit better. You see good communication between the secondary back there. Um, you know, those guys have a better feel for one another. I really believe that that's a big part of it, that they're, they're working together as a group. Um, and early on, you know, they were learning each other. And I think now they're, they're a lot more comfortable out there. The communication has been big. And again, we've been able to keep it in front of us. Yes, you have. Still a long way to go before we can say that Washington's defense has been fixed. But there are some encouraging signs, like third down defense. Remember how hideous Washington's third down defense was over the first eight games of the season? Well, Washington, over its last two games, has held the Bucks and Panthers to a combined 6 of 19 on third downs. That, my friends, is what we call good third down defense. And the biggest reason for the improved third down defense is the play of Washington's secondary. Better communication, better tackling, 
better roles for players like Landon Collins playing closer to the line of scrimmage. Now, why he ever wasn't playing close to the line of scrimmage, given that like everyone on the planet has known that he's bad in pass coverage, is beyond me, but whatever. Uh, Ron on Wednesday got asked about a key member of Washington's secondary, maybe the most key member of Washington's secondary, Kendall Fuller, who is number one on Washington this season with eight pass defenses. You know, he's been steady. He's probably our most steady player um, as far as our corners are concerned. He's very smart football player that gets the game and communicates well with his teammates. And, um, you know, we're very fortunate. You know, he's a lot healthier than he was last year. Um, so he's playing at, at, at a better level. He really has. And, and again, you see him being one of those guys that's trying to lead, that's trying to communicate out there that really has helped that group. Yeah, again, that theme of communication. Now, something notable with Washington secondary in the win at the Panthers was what went on with Benjamin St. Juice. Uh, he was inactive for the win over the Bucks due to a concussion. He was back for the game at the Panthers, but he didn't play on a single defensive snap, even though he did play on special teams. He played on five special team snaps. If the concussion was still a concern, why do he play on five special team snaps? And so the conclusion that you're left with is that he didn't play because Washington didn't want him to play. Washington had someone who Washington felt was better than St. Jude's to play. And that someone seems to have been Danny Johnson. Danny Johnson in the win at the Panthers again served as Washington's number three corner. And it sure sounds like Ron Rivera likes himself some Danny Johnson right now. Danny Johnson last regular season and postseason did not play on a single defensive snap for Washington. Washington released Johnson in the cut down to 53 this past August 31st, brought him back to the practice squad, then signed him from the practice squad to the active roster on October 5th. He has been playing a decent amount lately with St. Juice having dealt with two concussions and with both Torrey McTire and Daryl Roberts on the reserve injured list. Johnson in the win at the Panthers played on 27% of Washington's defensive snaps. And take a listen to this from Ron on Wednesday. So Ron got asked about Kendall Fuller playing a lot on the outside in the win at the Panthers. And Ron and his response had some very nice things to say about Danny Johnson. Here you go. Well, a lot of it has a tendency to do with, with matchups or the anticipation of what route combinations we can get. You know, Kendall's a guy that's got very good savvy to him in terms of understanding route concepts. And, and sometimes if you have a guy that gets that, guy that's been doing that really good for us lately has been Danny Johnson. You can see Danny has a good feel and, 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 and a good understanding of route concepts and, and his anticipation has been very good. He's, he's made a play every week. So you can see that. Um, from certain guys, and, and, and both Kendall and Danny have shown that the last couple of weeks um, has been very helpful. High praise from Don Ron right there regarding Danny Johnson. Remember, Washington's run to the postseason last season featured unlikely secondary heroes in Cameron Curl, DeShazer Everett, and Jeremy Reeves. Perhaps we're seeing something similar this season with Danny Johnson. Speaking of Cameron Curl, uh, he to me has been good this season. For a second consecutive season. Ron Rivera and Jack Del Rio certainly think so. They have had Curl cover the likes of Atlanta Falcons tight end Kyle Pitts and Carolina Panthers running back Christian McCaffrey, two very dangerous pass catchers, obviously. Ron on Wednesday on Cameron Curl, who remember 
was taken in the seventh round of the 2020 NFL Draft. Well, you know, when he first, you know, when studying him and getting, you know, the opportunity to draft him, we knew he was, he was a, a converted corner. So he's got corner cover skills. And so knowing that he has that kind of ability, he's a guy that you want to match up on players like that. You know, I remember last year, you know, doing that with him and, and, and him, you know, gave up a couple of big catches earlier, gave up a touchdown. I'm trying to remember um, who because I can see the games. But it was him understanding, you know, that how people are going to attack. You know, if you're, you're, a, if you're playing man coverage and he knows the, the tight end reads it and he knows he's got post help, he's going he's gonna, to he's gonna widen his release to try and widen you away from that post help and then work back inside. And those are things that Cam's learned, and, and he understands that now. He knows that if a guy pushes me out, he's going to try and work back to the post. I've got to be ready to squeeze with them. You see that, and you see that in practice. So you see that he's learning and understanding those little, those little nuances to the game that he has to have. Cameron Curl is second on Washington this season in solo tackles with 40. Washington's secondary was the biggest problem for the defense during its terrible play over the first eight games of the season. No position group was blameless, but the secondary was the biggest culprit. This improved defensive play for Washington during the two-game winning streak starts with the secondary being better. More from Ron Rivera on Wednesday on the importance of communication in the secondary. You know, you want guys that have communicated and worked together. And, and, and as I said, one of the things that we really haven't had here has been, you know, in, in, in the two years so far is just continuity in the secondary yet. You know, one of the things that I dealt with in, in the past is not having the same DB group for nine seasons when I was in Carolina. Every year we, we had a whole new group. Um, that's hard. And what we'd like to do is get to where we have a group of guys that can play together three, four, five years before there's transition. If you can do that, if you can have at least three out of the four or four out of the five guys back there um, repeated, that's that. I think that really creates the positive connection that you're looking for. So things can go unsaid. The anticipation of knowing that there's going to be somebody that's supposed to be over the top there, or, or if you're playing a certain technique, that there's going to be somebody on the inside. Those things are very valuable. They are. Uh, we should also mention William Jackson III, who has been better lately. Washington has no chance of continuing to win if the secondary doesn't continue to be better. But the secondary has been better lately. And that has been quite encouraging. All right. Well, on this special Black Friday installment of the Al Galdi podcast, it is time now for our special guest. He is one of the smartest people when it comes to talking about the Washington football team. He is Nathan Coleman of Full Press Coverage Washington, which is an outlet dedicated to coverage of the Washington football team. Nate is a great follow on Twitter at JayhawkChalk underscore and the J is just the letter J. Uh, and Nate is big into analytics. He understands football analytics really well, uses them a lot when analyzing the Washington football team. So he is a man whose approach I appreciate very much. Nate, it's great to talk to you again, man. How are you? I am doing well. Thank you so much for having me back on. I appreciate you coming on. So I wanted to have you on to do like a deep dive on the Washington football team, especially from the perspective of analytics. Uh, you're someone who really understands this stuff. So you know, when you look at this ongoing two-game winning streak, from your perspective, why does Washington finally have its first winning streak of the season? Like, if you had to bullet point the reasons, what are those reasons? 
Yeah, at the simplest level, it comes down to all three phases playing well, right? How many games in the last two years can you say all three phases were working? By, by three phases, I mean offense, defense, and special teams. This is the only two-game stretch where I remember that happening all year. It's so hard to get that all to gel together. And then on top of that, you don't have a lot of turnovers on offense. You know, last year, last year we were one of the worst offenses for turning over the ball. And this year, coming into two games ago, it was the same thing. So less turnovers. Uh, defense, you know, uh, getting better in the red zone, I think that was a big part of it. But the, the biggest thing altogether, though, is playing with a lead, Right. When you play with a lead on defense, you can pin your ears back. You can rush the passer. You don't have to worry about stopping the run as much because you know they have to pass. And on the flip side, on offense, it gives you more flexibility to run the ball. You know, to you, you can keep the defense honest because they don't know what you're going to do because you're playing with the lead. And it's so much harder to play from behind. I mean, Taylor Heineke pretty much his whole career here has had to play with a deficit. You know, the pass rush is coming. It puts extra stress on the offensive line, and it just makes it harder for your game plan to roll out. You can't really use the running game as much. You can't use play action as much as you want to. So, I mean, it's been there, – there's so many different reasons. You can really boil it down to one thing, but I guess if you had to say it's just the team gelling all at once right now. It's funny you bring up playing with a lead and Washington running the football because something that is coming up quite a bit is that a reason for the winning streak is that Washington has been running the ball more. And I know that that take drives me nuts. I know that it drives you nuts because Washington is running the ball more because Washington is leading in these games. People sort of have it reversed. Um, But when you hear that take, I mean, do you want to scream as much as I do? Yeah, I mean, sometimes, but I understand it. So the thing with running the ball is like analytics isn't telling you that running the ball doesn't matter. It's all about uh, when you use it, not how often you use it. You know, if you run the ball 40 times, you're not going to be any more efficient on the 40th carry as you are on the first carry, you know. Um, but the thing is, like, you need you need to be able to run the ball in certain situations, you know, third and short, fourth and short, especially in the red zone where we've really struggled. Running the ball is huge. The problem is when we get in the red zone and we want to run the ball, instead of spreading out the defense, we like to use these really tight formations. And it's just an obvious indicator of the defense to just you know, pack the box and stop us there. But yeah, I mean, r- rush attempts come when you're playing with the lead, like I talked about. So that's a big part of it. I mean, everyone talks about balance and this whole like run and pass split ratio. And that's a thing like old school coaches came up with a long time ago. And it's evolved over the years. Uh, the best coaches will tell you it's not about your run pass split. It's about getting your best players the ball with the best opportunity to make a play. And, and that's what I care about more than anything. And, and when you pass the ball, it just so happens you average a lot more yards per play. You're more efficient. So it, you have to have a good combination of both. But I mean, not, like I said, playing with the lead really helps everything. Yeah, certainly opens up your playbook. And generally speaking, in the NFL, you pass to get the lead, you run to preserve the lead. I mean, it's not true all of the time, but that kind of is the way I think, to look at things. So Taylor Heineke, uh, there is so much out there on him. Everyone has an opinion on you know what he is, what he isn't, what he can be, what he can't be. What is the official Nathan Coleman position on Taylor Heineke? Yeah, so I think since last year, I always just saw him as a, a viable backup. I'm just watching that Carolina game last year and then going into the playoffs. I mean, he played out of his mind. So I thought he's a guy who could 
be a backup on a lot of teams. Um, and that's kind of what I've seen this year. Obviously, like we're seeing him at his peak ceiling right now, and that's awesome. And, and I think what he's proving right now is he could be your bridge quarterback for next year, and you feel pretty comfortable with that. Do I think he's like a franchise savior? No, but I think you should be thrilled as a fan base when your backup quarterback is playing like one of the you know 20 best starters in the NFL right now. I mean, that's unheard of. Most NFL teams, if they had a backup playing right now, they would be happy to get, you know, like quarterback 30, quarterback 31 one play out of them and, and you can go around the league and look at some of these backups right now how much they're struggling look at look at a you know like mike white coming in and just getting destroyed last week like it's hard to play as a backup so heineke's been doing like he's been playing out of his mind and maybe like we're just seeing him start to finally get it uh but he, he's been so out, outstanding i mean the big time throws uh it's been fantastic the big thing with him though is he gets so much time in the pocket um it, so he ranks like second in the NFL in time in the pocket. The only quarterback who gets more time in the pocket is Jalen Hurts. And then right behind him is Lamar Jackson. So they're all guys who create their own, like, you know, create off script. They have more time to throw the ball. Um, but the problem is, like, if, if he throws the ball under that three seconds, he's one of the least efficient quarterbacks in the NFL. So he, he needs a lot of time to make something happen, either with his legs or just throwing the ball. But, I mean, he, he's a roller coaster for sure, but I'm enjoying the ride. I don't know why he's so divisive. Like, you, people should just be happy that you have a backup quarterback who's playing like a good NFL starter right now. I mean, that's unheard of. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Washington's offensive line. It really has been impressive, especially considering all of the injuries. With Heineke, I think one of the more tricky things is, okay, when he has struggled, has he struggled because that's just who he is? Or has he struggled because of the inexperience and that he needs to work through these growing pains? You know, the sample size of Taylor Heineke in the NFL remains so small. He started just 11 NFL games regular season and postseason. To what extent, if at all, do you factor in that limited sample size and say, okay, maybe he's not a finished product. Maybe there is more and better to come from him. I think like physically he's peaked, right? I mean, he's 28, so you're not going to see a lot of development physically. His arm is what it is, right? He's limited as a passer. He doesn't have a lot of arm strength. And you, you even saw that in the game. There was probably three missed touchdown opportunities where if he had a little more like torque when he throws the ball, you could get that ball placement just right. And that would have led to a few big plays. But I mean, it, yeah, he doesn't have that much experience starting. He has the same amount of starts as Mac Jones. Um, so yeah, you have to give him the benefit of the doubt. And to me, he's earned the opportunity to play the rest of the year through. Like there should be no question going back to Kyle Allen or anything like that. Like Heineke just gives you that high ceiling and that kind of, you know, sometimes low floor, but it's kind of worth it. He's a roller coaster. Let's ride it while it's working. Talking Washington football team with Washington football team analyst, Nathan Coleman of Full Press Coverage Washington. So you do a lot with the NFL Draft. You're the co-creator of Washington Football Draft Day, which was a limited YouTube series on Washington's 2021 draft. The consensus opinion on the 2022 quarterback class is that it isn't very good. Do you see it that way? And if so, what to you does that mean for Washington? Yeah, so it's hard to have a good quarterback class when you're living on the shadows of maybe the greatest quarterback class in the last 20 years, right? And so far, that great quarterback class really hasn't lived up to the hype yet. Um, so what do I think about this class? Like everyone's saying it's it's not a good class, but I would say we don't know yet. I, I think a lot is going to change by the time we get to maybe March. Um, but yeah, there's no consensus number one. This time last year, there was a consensus number one. Almost every single year in the past five years, there's been a consensus number one. And we don't have that this year. Um, but 
I, I do think like whatever Taylor Heineke does, it shouldn't in any way alter our draft plan or our offseason plan to acquire a quarterback. They, they should be, like not be leaving a single stone unturned when it comes to looking for a quarterback, whether that's, you know, a veteran. And if they go that veteran route, I don't think that's happening. I think that's just a moonshot. Like there's no way. Uh, why would Aaron Rodgers come here? Why would Russell Wilson come here? It just doesn't make sense. The, the draft capital, you'd have to give up the contract extension. They'd have to be willing to play here. You probably have to give up players. I mean, it's just, it's not that viable to me. And then on top of that, like drafting a quarterback is just so much easier. You, you, you don't have to spend any extra draft capital. They're on a cheap contract. You can pick exactly who you want for the most part, depending on your draft position. So, I, I mean, I want to draft a quarterback in round one. Like, I don't, I don't care. I think that's, that's the only way you're going to find your franchise quarterback at the most cost-effective way. So um, I know a lot of people are really into Kyle Hamilton, the safety out of, uh, out of Notre Dame. And, yeah, he's awesome. I will say this is one of the best like safety classes that we've seen. There's like uh, five top top 50 safeties in this class, like in Dane Brugler's latest top 50. And then on top of that, uh, free like free safeties in the NFL for free agency. You got the Honey Badger. You got Marcus Williams. Uh, you got Jesse Bates, Marcus May. There's a bunch of really good free agent safeties out there. So I think that's like besides quarterback, like free safety is my number one thing that I'm going after in the off season. I think this is the best off season you could have to go after free safety. And, and that's something I want to see them address. Yeah. You know, it's funny though, in thinking about the draft and we're obviously months away, we still have the rest of the season to play out, but especially seeing the season that Chase Young has had, I'm kind of like, if Washington has a high pick, it's almost like either take a quarterback or trade down because the value of every other position beyond quarterback just does not come close to quarterback, you know? Like, if they don't like one of the quarterbacks available to them or they can't get the guy who they do want, then just trade down and get more picks and find somebody good that way because it just feels like there's quarterback and there's everything else. Yeah, I mean, in the draft, if you're not drafting a position that doesn't affect the passing game in some way in the first round, you're probably making a mistake. And that's what they did with Jamin Davis. They kind of ignored the passing game altogether. And they went with somebody who's going to take, you know, three years to develop. and isn't really affecting the defending the pass at all anyway. Um, so, uh, yeah, obviously, if, if you're not getting quarterback, which is like need number one. Yeah, you, you have to always be looking at trading down, trading up. That, I mean, I mean, the thing is, you, it takes two to tangle, right? you got to find someone else who's willing to trade with you. And they have to meet the compensation that, that you want. So, I mean, it's easier said than done. But, yeah, you have to be open to it. And I'd be interested to see what they do, though. I mean, I still think, like, wide receiver is a need. I mean, you could run down the list. I still think they need, like, a franchise left tackle, even though I really like what Charles Leno and, and, and Sam Cosme have been doing. And even their swing tackle, man, he's been awesome too. Cornelius Lucas is probably like the best swing tackle in football right now. And no one's really talking about him. But I mean, I know I'm going off on a tangent, but man, that offensive line with John Matsko, they just got me fired up right now. Yeah, Matsko has been tremendous. I mean, again, that offensive line has been ravaged by injury. And the offensive line, especially if you go by the analytics, has been one of the better offensive lines in the NFL. Uh, Scott Turner, what do you think about Scott as a play caller so far this season? Yeah, so I think going into this year, I kind of what I didn't know what to think of him because you can't really tell because they're always playing from behind and just getting destroyed. Um, but one thing I always liked last year with him is he he had pass protection down, and like that's one of the first things you have to be able to take care of is pass protection. And even with bad quarterback play last year, he was able to get pretty good pass protection, and you saw that translate again this year. And I think that's part of his scheme is he knows how to like create time in the pocket. 
And then you see receivers running open down the field. And, and by the way, like we don't have very good skill position players. So to see them still getting open down the field, to see them protecting the quarterback, I think that bodes well for the future because you know you get the best out of quarterbacks when they have a clean pocket. Um, so if we can replicate that going into year three, that's going to be huge. And we've seen that with Taylor Heineke. But the thing I like about Scott Turner more than anything is going like – by the time we get to third down so far this year, we have the least amount of yards to go in the NFL. Uh, and I think it's like four yards to go on average. That's fantastic. I mean, that's hard to do with when you don't have good skill position players, when you're playing with a backup quarterback, you know, when you're playing with a running back who's struggling. Uh, I, I definitely like Turner. I, I like how he's aggressive. You know, he runs a high pace offense. They run like the fourth most plays in the NFL. Uh, which I love, you know, the more plays you get out there, the more chances you have to score, the more yards you can rack up. So there's some things I don't like about him that he's working on, you know, the running the ball on second and 10, uh, you know, running the ball after a negative play. I hate that. I think he struggles like on two point conversions, you know, in the red zone clutch plays. And I think part of that is just like, they don't have skill players that can create separation right away who can create after the catch. They don't have any yak guys or anything like that other than McLaurin. And that's why Samuel is going to be so important in the development of Diami Brown. But I think Turner is doing the best he can with what he has, but he's definitely opened my eyes so far. I mean, he's going to be, he's going to be like that Joe Brady head coaching candidate in another year, I think. Oh, wow. So you're that high on him. You think he could be a head coach? Yeah, I think the rest of the NFL is high on him, to be honest. I, I think the fan base here, they, they focus so much on Scott Turner, but like every game that his quarterback has played well, Scott Turner is a genius. And every game that his quarterback hasn't played well, Scott Turner is terrible. And I don't think that's really that fair because like most of the time he's had nothing to work with at quarterback. And that's not really, that's not really his fault. There's things he can improve on, but I mean, he's a young coordinator. He still has a lot of potential. So I'm pretty high on him. Yeah. This fan base of which we are a part has a history of shredding offensive coordinators who end up becoming head coaches. Kyle Shanahan, Sean McVay, you know, maybe Scott Turner. So the fact that he gets criticized here <laughs> may actually work in his favor. We'll see. Uh, Washington's defense, why to you has it been so much better over these last two games? Yeah, we, we hit on it before, right? Like uh, playing with the lead as a defense makes it so much easier. You you know the down and distance when they're going to pass the ball, and that makes it a lot easier to de defend. On top of that, I think with Chase Young and Montez Sweat out, I think uh, I, I think Jack Del Rio has had to be a little more creative and hands on with the defensive ends, the edge players, because like they're just they're not the same caliber of pass rusher, obviously. Um, but you've seen the defense. The, the biggest thing, though, to me is the defensive backs, defensive backs like they've probably been the worst in football over the first seven weeks of the season. But you've seen Fuller step up. You've seen Danny Johnson step up. You've seen William Jackson. I, I, I think he's bounced back like everyone was so upset about his contract, but he's a guy who just needs some time. Um, but, but I think they played awesome. Curl's been good all year. And then Bobby McCain, it's just like, we just need you to be like a replacement level safety. I don't need you to be Sean Taylor. I just don't need you to be like Troy Apke either. And that's kind of what we're seeing a little bit. Landon Collins has been a lot better playing in the box. It scratch. It makes you scratch your head that it took so long to put him in the box. Like we've been talking about that for like two years now. Um, but I mean, overall they've been playing better. I think, I think, uh, Jamin Davis is still struggling. I know people are like, he led the team in tackles the other, the other day, but if you really go back and like watch his tape, like he doesn't know what he's seeing. He's missing tackles. He's getting blown up by offensive linemen. He just needs more time to develop. Like I, I'm still excited about him, but man, just off ball linebacker, it just, it breaks your heart, especially when you see like other guys like Micah Parsons, uh, just and Xavier Collins just tearing it up right now. And our guys just, you know, struggling out there.
Yeah, and Washington had two cracks at JOK in the 2021 draft. Didn't take them, and JOK is killing it for the Cleveland Browns. So with Washington's defense, it's so interesting because there has been this debate in analytic circles in recent years of what matters more, pass rush versus pass coverage. Well, here you have, of course, Washington with this ultra-loaded defensive line into which Washington has deployed so many draft resources. Uh, Chase Young and Montez Sweat now are out, and Washington's defense has played by far its best games of the season, and that coincides, not coincidentally, with the secondary being better. Is what is happening with Washington's defense this season proof positive that, yes, pass coverage does matter more than pass rush, or is it not that simple? Yeah, I mean, it's a two-game sample, so if you want to draw any sort of trends from that, you're probably probably not a good idea. It's kind of like when they talked about, like, oh, we've been running the ball more, and that's why we're winning. Um, it's Correlation isn't always causation, right? Uh, but I, I will say, like, I, I do think, like, pass coverage is a little bit more important, but they're so close, right? You can't really have one without the other. Um, but, like, pass rushing, you, you can negate that. There's different ways to, ne- to negate a pass rush, whereas, like, good coverage, it's hard to come by. It is so much harder in the NFL draft in general just to find players that are great coverage players than it is finding a pass rusher. Every year there's good pass rushers. Think about like rookie cornerbacks that come out. It's so hard for them to succeed because it's the most volatile position in football. It's so hard to be good at defensive back every single week. Uh, And that's why it's so vital. And I think we have the right players in place to do that. But I mean, it's just, we went from being... Or that Denver game was like the pivotal point, right? We were the worst defense on third and fourth down for a conversion rate. And on top of that, in offense, we were the worst uh, offense by converting third and fourth down. So we had the worst efficiency for EPA per drop back. And then something happened in the, like after that Denver game, we just kind of like changed. Or maybe we regressed back to the norm. I don't know what happened, but it just feels like a different team right now. And the, the cool thing is like I think people forget about is like Montez Sweat can come back. So if they can just hold the ship, right, the ship, Montez Sweat will be back. And it's not like his injury is going to prevent him. You know, it's not anything with his arms or his legs. It's his jaw. So, I mean, I feel good about that. You're going to get Logan Thomas back. Curtis Samuel, I'm not going to say anything on him because who knows? Like, I mean, every time we think he's coming back, he's his groin gets hurt again. So, Yeah, the Samuel thing has been maddening, no doubt. Uh, I want to get your take on a strategic aspect of Washington's season. So Washington, through week 11, was tied for first in the NFL in most fourth down attempts at 23. And that's despite Washington having played 10 games and some teams having played 11 games. Now, obviously, context matters when it comes to going forward on fourth downs. But what do you make of the frequency with which Washington has gone for it on fourth downs this season? I think any team that's struggling or, or, you know, that's scraping along, that's just trying, should go for it on fourth down as much as possible. I mean, you need every single edge you can get because you don't have an offense skilled with having all these like crazy good playmakers. You don't have a quarterback who can like sling the ball 80 yards down the field. You have to do whatever you can. You have to scrape and claw to get third downs to convert. Um, so yeah, we need to be doing that as much as possible. I understand like it's, it's risky, but at the same time, I, I talked about uh, before, like on third down, we have the least amount of yards to go on average in the NFL. That means that those third and fourth downs are not as hard to convert as other teams because we have less distance to go. So I'm all about that. And, and we talked a little bit about the run game before, like that's when the run game comes into play. If you get third and short, fourth and short, that's one of the best times to run the ball. And when you do that, you spread out the you spread out the defense and that's when you run the ball. You get like six men in the box, shotgun. That, that's when I want to see like J.D. McKissick just 
run it up the middle or you, that zone read or anything like that. And I think it also helps having a mobile quarterback, right? I think that's part of the reason like Heineke has been, had such a high passing grade is because he can run the ball on those, those off script opportunities. So that's, that's been a big part of it too. Final question. Uh, of course, the big question with this two game winning streak is, well, what is it? Is it the start of another late season run by a Washington team to the postseason? Or is this just a nice two game stretch? Uh, what do you think? Do you think Washington continues to do well? Or do you think this ultimately ends up being a bad season for Washington? Yeah, so I think, you know, the first like eight or nine weeks, I don't think the team is that bad. But I also don't think they're as good as the last two weeks, right? They're probably somewhere in the middle. But that somewhere in the middle is good enough to probably like contend for that seventh spot in the, in the playoffs. Um, they control their own destiny in a lot of ways. They're going to play Seattle, who is just reeling right now. Um, Seattle's looking at Geno Smith being a better quarterback option right now because Russell Wilson's hand is just destroyed. Um, but man, yeah, they create their they, they create their own destiny here. They they get to play all their division rivals. I mean, you know Dallas is gonna be a close game. Philly, we kind of match up with them well because what Philly does is they run the ball a ton and they slow down the game. And uh I, I mean we're great at stopping the run. So that kind of works out for us. Uh, but it'll be interesting with Dallas. We get to play the Giants. I mean, I think we're in a good spot overall. I think it's going to be fun. Uh, fans just need to enjoy it. Don't worry about draft position until, I guess, after the season. But what you really want to see more than anything is these young players develop. Because we know, like, this team isn't going to the Super Bowl this year. But if we can see some, like, expedited development from these young guys, it's going to put you in a position next year where you're a quarterback away. And at least that's the hope. That's the goal. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, I'm with you on that. The whole thing about draft position, if you lessen your draft position, but you lessen it because your younger players are developing and playing better and the team is picking up some wins, that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. So we'll take that. Uh, Nathan, love having you on, man. Love your perspective on things. Follow Nathan on Twitter at JayhawkChalk underscore. And the J is just the letter J. Nathan Coleman of Full Press Coverage Washington, an outlet dedicated to coverage of the Washington football team. Happy Thanksgiving, man. And thanks so much for your time. Hey, happy Thanksgiving, man. Thanks for having me on. All right. Good stuff from Nathan Coleman talking Washington football team. And we turn our attention now to college football. Goldilocks for week 13 of the college football season. You know, this is kind of sad. This is the final full week of the college football regular season. But these tears that I am shedding are, in fact, tears of joy because it has been another successful season of Goldilocks. 3 and 1 last week, 24 and 16 is the overall record on the season. Yes, 8 games above 500 on the season. You have heard of Goldilocks and the Three Bears. This is Goldilocks, my weekly college football picks against the spreads for Maryland, Navy, Virginia Tech, and Virginia. I don't just cherry pick plays that I like. I make myself pick these games for these teams and Goldilocks again has been profitable. Snoop Dogg, if you would. Make money, money, make money, money, money. Yes, thank you, Snoop. I appreciate that. So here we go. Goldilocks for college football week 13. All odds are from Caesars Sportsbook as of very early Friday morning. Goldilocks game number one, Maryland at Rutgers. Saturday at noon, the Terrapins are minus one 
and a half. This game, a battle of the two Big Ten relative newcomers who just can't get right in conference play. Each team is five and six overall this season. The winner gets to six wins and bowl eligibility. The loser finishes its regular season at five and seven, although five and seven doesn't necessarily mean that you can't play in a bowl game. The rules are complicated. Anyway, the Terps need this win. This has been yet another Maryland football season in which the Terps started off well, got people like me all excited, and then got destroyed by ranked Big Ten teams. And so the Terps have been stumbling down the stretch of their season. They're coming off a 59-18 loss to then number six Michigan at Capital One Field at Maryland Stadium in College Park last Saturday. Terps defense had more problems, allowed Michigan quarterback Cade McNamara to go 21 of 28 for 259 yards, two touchdowns and no interceptions. And the Terps sacked him just once. The Terps, as of Thanksgiving, were just 103rd in the FBS in defensive efficiency for ESPN. Uh, Terps quarterback Talia Tungavailoa had a bad game. He threw for just 178 yards on 33 pass attempts. That works out to a yards per pass attempt of 5.39. Talia completed just 19 of his 33 pass attempts. That works out to a completion percentage of just 57.58. Talia threw a late third quarter 42-yard pick six to Michigan defensive back DJ Turner. Talia did have a third quarter second and goal 70-yard shotgun touchdown pass to receiver Carlos Carrier. Uh, Talia did have a third quarter second and 10 17-yard shotgun scramble touchdown run. But Talia, like the Maryland team as a whole, has really cooled off as this season has gone on. You know, two of the team's best receivers, Dante Demas Jr. and Jay Sean Jones being done for the season due to leg injuries certainly has not helped. But still, uh, also, in the loss to Michigan, the Terps on the kickoff that followed Talia's touchdown pass to Carrier gave up an 81-yard kickoff return for a touchdown by Michigan receiver A.J. Henning. So will the Terps get to six wins for what would be the first time since the 2016 season, which was D.J. Durkin's first season as Terps head coach? Well, Rutgers is not very good offensively, but is pretty good defensively. Rutgers, as of Thanksgiving, was just 107th in the FBS in offensive efficiency per ESPN, but was 36th in the FBS in defensive efficiency for ESPN. Strange last three weeks for Rutgers. The Scarlet Knights on November 6th lost at home to then number 21 Wisconsin 52-3. They on November 13th won at Indiana 38-3, but they last Saturday lost at Penn State 28-0. So two blowout losses sandwiched around a blowout win on the road. Uh, Neither Maryland nor Rutgers can be trusted. This game offers a classic battle of bad versus bad in the Terps. Bad defense versus Rutgers bad offense. Uh, Something's got to give, you would think. No way would I bet this game if I did not have to. But if the Terps lose this game, you really do have to wonder where we're going with Mike Loxley as head coach. Give me Maryland minus one and a half. Make money, money, make money, money, money. Thank you, Snoop. Goldilocks game number two, the Commonwealth Cup. Virginia, home to Virginia Tech, Saturday afternoon at 345. The Cavaliers are minus seven. This game will mark the 103rd meeting between Virginia and Virginia Tech in football. The series started in 1895. Uh, This game is the ultimate test of Virginia Tech having owned Virginia for years. If Virginia doesn't beat Virginia Tech this season, then the Cavaliers should just give up playing the Hokies, okay? Virginia has lost 16 of its last 17 games against Virginia Tech. The lone Wahoos win 
in that stretch was a 39-30 victory at Scott Stadium in Charlottesville in 2019. Now, the Cavs have lost three straight, although all of the losses have been to ranked teams, and one of the losses came with the Cavs being without their stud quarterback, Brennan Armstrong. Uh, Cavs fell to 6-5 with a 48-38 loss at then number 18 Pitt last Saturday. Pitt with this victory clinched the ACC's Coastal Division. The game was tied at 31 in the third quarter. Pitt then won the rest of the game 17-7, whose quarterback Brendan Armstrong did return from a one-game absence that was caused by a rib injury that was suffered in that 66-49 loss at then number 25 BYU on October 30th. And Armstrong in this loss at Pitt was really good, you know, especially considering Pitt's defense. Uh, Pitt's defense through week 11 was number 11 in the FBS in defensive efficiency for ESPN. And yet Armstrong last Saturday went 36 of 49 for 487 yards, 9.94 yards per pass attempt. He had three touchdown passes versus an interception. He did take five sacks. Uh, UVA's bad defense had its moments, but ultimately it was not good. Uh, No surprise there. UVA in facing pit stud quarterback Kenny Pickett did register two interceptions and three sacks and did hold him to 26 completions on 41 pass attempts, uh, which works out to a completion percentage of 63.41. But UVA allowed Pickett to throw for 340 yards and four touchdowns. Two of those touchdown passes were fourth down touchdown passes, a second quarter, fourth and four, 18-yard touchdown pass, and a third quarter, fourth and one, 34-yard touchdown pass. And UVA got torched by Pitt receiver Jordan Addison. Uh, Addison went to Tuscarora High School in Frederick, Maryland. He finished this game with 14 receptions for 202 yards and four touchdowns on 19 targets, 78 of his 202 yards were yak yards, and UVA allowed Pitt running backs, Vincent Davis, Rodney Hammond Jr., and Israel Abanacanda to combine for 30 carries for 185 yards and a touchdown, 6.17 yards per carry. Uh, Cavs running back Wayne Talapapa did return from a one-game absence, but he had just two carries for 11 yards, and the Hoos gave up a 98-yard kickoff return for a touchdown by Pitt running back Israel Abanacanda in the second quarter. And then there is Virginia Tech. The Hokies fell to 5-6 and six with a 38-26 loss at Miami last Saturday night. This in the Hokies' first game under interim head coach J.C. Price, who benched starting quarterback Braxton Burmeister in favor of the Texas A&M transfer, Connor Blumrick. Uh, Burmeister went 14-17, but for just 109 yards, 6.41 yards per pass attempt. He had a touchdown pass versus no interceptions, took two sacks, and he had 10 carries for 52 yards. And the 52 yards include the yardage lost on the two sacks. Uh, Blumrick, 5 of 11 for just 39 yards, 3.55 yards per pass attempt. He did have two touchdown passes, versus no interceptions, took two sacks, and he had 20 carries for 132 yards, and the 132 yards include the yardage lost on the two sacks. Uh, Price, during his post-game session with reporters, said that he rode the, quote, hot hand, end quote, in going with Blumrick, and Price this week would not announce a starting quarterback for Saturday's game at Virginia. I'm not sure that it matters. Uh, Blumrick is a big kid. He's listed as being 6'5 and 215 pounds. Burmeister is listed as being 6'1 and 205 pounds. But one of the things that has been said by more than a few Hokies fans this season is that the Hokies just don't have a really good quarterback on the roster. And it sure felt that way in this loss at Miami last Saturday night. Uh, Also in that game, Tech receiver Trey Turner aggravated 
a throat injury he's been dealing with and thus was limited in his playing time. There's also this. Tech got carved up by Miami quarterback Tyler Van Dyke. Now, Van Dyke only completed 19 of his 33 pass attempts, but he threw for 357 yards and three touchdowns versus no interceptions. He threw for 357 on 33 pass attempts, 10.82 yards per pass attempt, and Tech did not register a sack the entire game. Tech gave up a Tyler Van Dyke fourth quarter, second and 10, 55-yard shotgun touchdown bomb to receiver Mike Harley. The only reason that Virginia should lose to Virginia Tech is Virginia's bad defense. The Cavs, as of Thanksgiving, ranked 108th in the FBS in defensive efficiency per ESPN, while also ranking ninth in the FBS in offensive efficiency per ESPN. How about that disparity? But beyond the who's also bad defense, there's no good reason for them to lose this game to Tech. Uh, The who's offense is elite. The Hokies defense isn't very good. The Hokies have a quarterback controversy. The Hokies have an interim head coach. The game is in Charlottesville. Again, if Virginia doesn't beat Virginia Tech this season, then the Cavaliers should just give up playing the Hokies. This sets up so well in Virginia's favor, you almost feel like Virginia's going to lose, especially given the recent history against Virginia Tech. All of that said, give me Wahoo minus seven. Make money, money, make money, money, money. And Goldilocks game number three, Navy at Temple, Saturday at noon. The midshipmen are minus 12 and a half. Very interesting line, but the line is about to make sense. So Navy fell to two and eight with a 38-35 loss to East Carolina at Navy Marine Corps Memorial Stadium in Annapolis last Saturday. The Mids led in the fourth quarter 35-27, but then allowed ECU to score the game's final 11 points. The Mids' defense was bad. Mids allowed ECU to total 563 total net yards of offense and average 8.7 yards per play. The Mids got shredded by ECU quarterback Colton Ehlers, who went 27 of 32 for 405 yards, three touchdowns, and no interceptions. And the Mids did not register a single sack. And the Mids allowed Ehlers to have seven carries for 48 yards. But Navy did have its best offensive game of the season. Navy's offense has been the team's biggest problem this season. The offense had a nice game in this loss to ECU in Annapolis last Saturday. Navy averaged eight yards per play. Navy totaled 44 carries for 345 yards and two touchdowns, 7.84 yards per carry. Navy quarterback Ty Lovatai had his best passing game of the season by far, 4-4 for 37 yards, two touchdowns versus no interceptions, took just one sack, had 13 carries for 51 yards, and Navy slotback Carlinos Acey, six carries for 155 yards, including an early fourth quarter, first and 10, 90-yard under center pitch triple option touchdown run down the left sideline. And Navy's special teams, which have been horrendous this season, made a huge positive play. A mid-slotback, Mikel Haywood, had a fourth quarter 98-yard kickoff return for a touchdown. Temple, it is three and eight, but has lost six consecutive games, the latest of which was a 44-10 loss at Tulsa. Temple, during this six-game losing streak, has scored a total, a total of 45 points. That's amazing in this era of high-octane offense in college football, that any FBS team could go six consecutive games and total just 45 points. Temple is atrocious offensively. 
and is really bad defensively. And that's why a Navy team that is two and eight is favored by 12 and a half points playing at a Temple team that is three and eight. Give me Navy minus 12 and a half. Make money, money, make money, money, money. All right. So Maryland minus one and a half, Virginia minus seven, and Navy minus 12 and a half. Those are your Goldilocks. For college football, week 13. All right, let's talk Capitals. Uh, They have two games this weekend, and they are two big games. Home to the NHL-leading Florida Panthers Friday evening at 5, and at the Carolina Hurricanes Sunday afternoon at 1. So the Washington football team won at Carolina last Sunday in a 1 p.m. game. We'll see if the Washington hockey team will win at Carolina this Sunday in a 1 p.m. game. But the Caps and Hurricanes are tied for second in the NHL with 29 points. Uh, Caps are in a strange place right now. They keep winning, but they keep losing players. Uh, The Caps on Wednesday night improved to 12-3-5 with a 6-3 win over the Montreal Canadiens at Capital One Arena. This despite the Caps remaining without a number of key players and losing another key player. Defenseman Justin Schultz suffered an upper body injury and did not return. And so now who knows uh, how long the Caps might be out without Schultz because injuries in the NHL are cloaked in secrecy. But you can add Justin Schultz to a list that already was like a mile long. TJ Oshie on Wednesday night did not play for a second consecutive game due to a lower body injury that was suffered in the 4-0 win at the San Jose Sharks this past Saturday night. And Oshie in that game returned from a 10-game absence that was caused by another lower body injury. Uh, This one was suffered in a 3-2 overtime loss to the Detroit Red Wings at Capital One Arena on October 27th. Connor Sheary on Wednesday night did not play for a second straight game due to an upper body injury that was suffered prior to the 5-2 loss at the Seattle Kraken this past Sunday night. Lars Eller on Wednesday night did not play for a fifth consecutive game due to being in the NHL's COVID-19 protocol. Anthony Mantha is out indefinitely due to shoulder surgery that he underwent on November 5th. And don't forget, Nicholas Backstrom has not played at all this season due to ongoing rehabilitation on his hip. And yet, despite all of these absences, the Caps are 12-3-5. and Pretty remarkable. Head coach Peter Laviolette and his players deserve a lot of credit. So too does senior vice president and general manager Brian McClellan because the Caps' depth is being tested and the depth is passing the test. Do you know who made up the Caps' fourth line for this win over the Canadiens on Wednesday night? The Caps' fourth line for this game was Beck Malenstein, Michael Scarbosa, and Brett Leeson. Now, I'm guessing that most of you listening to this segment are Capitals fans. You have to be a hardcore Caps fan. You have to be a Caps wonk to have heard of all three of those guys. Beck Malenstein, Michael Scarbosa, and Brett Leeson. And yet, the Caps' fourth line on Wednesday night was comprised of those three guys. And that line ended up being the Caps' best line in the game. I kid you not. That line, per natural stat trick, finished number one on the Caps in the game with a collective five-on-five shot attempt percentage of 85.71. The Caps in seven minutes, 58 seconds of five-on-five ice time in which those three players were on the ice together generated 12 shot attempts and gave up just two shot attempts. Good for a five-on-five shot attempt percentage of 85.71. That's outstanding. 
Laviolette, during his post-game press conference on Wednesday night, on the work of Beck Malenstein, Michael Scarbosa, and Brett Leeson. They were really good. They were smart. Uh, they worked really hard. I thought that it was... Um, I thought they complemented each other well. I think that they had played with each other, or parts of it anyway, in the past down in Hershey. And, um, you know, Beck provided some physicality and... Um, I thought Scarves did a really good job in the middle of the ice. Lisa's been solid for us, so they, they did a good job. Yeah, good stuff from those guys. In terms of the puck possession battle on Wednesday night, the Caps destroyed the Canadiens in the puck possession battle in a first period that the Caps won 3-1. The Caps in the first period had 16 shots on goal to the Canadiens' five, and per natural stat trick had 30 five-on-five shot attempts to the Canadiens' six. Uh, I talk about this five-on-five shot attempt stuff a lot because I think that this stuff matters, and I don't think it gets nearly enough attention in mainstream sports media. It's not often you have a discrepancy like the one that we had in the first period on Wednesday night. The Caps per natural stat trick with 30 five-on-five shot attempts to the Canadian six. Uh, now, the Caps and Canadians over the final two periods each had 33 five-on-five shot attempts per natural stat trick. So the puck possession battle evened out over the final 40 minutes of the game, but the opening 20 were all about the Caps. Uh, Ilya Samsonov was the Caps' starting goaltender for this win over the Canadiens. Uh, He was coming off having become the first Caps goaltender to record shutouts in back-to-back regular season games since Braden Holtby in January 2017. Uh, Samsonov wasn't bad. You know, he won great, but it was an acceptable performance. He stopped 25 of the 28 shots on goal that he faced. He per natural stat trick stopped seven of the nine high danger shots on goal that he faced and four of the five medium danger shots on goal that he faced. But how about this now with Ilya Samsonov? He has become the first goaltender in Capitals history to record at least one point in each of his first eight decisions of a regular season. Now, I am not big on goaltenders' records as a means of judging how good those goaltenders are, just like I am not big on pitchers' records and quarterbacks' records as ways of determining how good those guys are. But that is a nice accomplishment. Samsonov, first goaltender in Caps history to record at least one point in each of his first eight decisions of a regular season. Samsonov, with this win, improved to 7-0-1 this season. He and Florida's Sergei Bobrovsky are the only goaltenders in the NHL this season, each with at least eight starts and zero regulation losses. And the Caps just happen to be facing, uh, presumably, Obobo and the Panthers at Capital One Arena on Friday evening at five. Uh, Caps in this win over the Canadiens went 1-1 on the power play and 3-3 on the penalty kill. And Alex Ovechkin had three assists, a primary assist, which came on a two-on-one with Tom Wilson on Wilson's even strength goal, 149 into the third period for a 5-2 Caps lead. And two secondary assists. Uh, this was Ovi's first three-assist game since February 2018, the extent to which Ovechkin is racking up assists this season is remarkable. You know about Ovi's goals, but Ovechkin now has 17 assists in 20 games this season. That works out to a rate of 0.85 assists per game. Uh, that is the highest such rate in a regular season in Ovechkin's career. Uh, he's having a great season, just like the Caps, despite the injuries and absences continuing to pile up. More from Laviolette during his post-game press conference on Wednesday night. I mean, after the game, we just mentioned it. Like, th- these guys getting called up here, you know, we're not hiding them. They're they're playing minutes, and they're playing important minutes, and they're doing a really good job for us. It is, 
it's a substantial number of forwards that are out of the lineup and we've got to keep moving forward we have to keep the train moving down the track and these guys have come up and done an excellent job there's no doubt about it so um, you know I got big game coming up against Florida you know, they got the most points in the league right now another big game behind it so we gotta we gotta keep keep pushing yeah big test against the Panthers on Friday evening Time now to talk Wizards, who are in a bit of a rut right now. Uh, four losses in five games since the grade 10-3 and start, and the latest game was by far the worst loss of the season for the Wizards so far. The Wizards on Wednesday night fell to 11-7 and with a 127-102 blowout loss at the New Orleans Pelicans. Uh, this game was a disaster. Facing a Pelicans team... That came into the game just 3-16 and 16 this season, facing a Pelicans team that has been without Zion Williamson for the entire season as he recovers from a right foot fracture. The Wizards got smashed. They never led in the game. The Wizards trailed by as many as 31 points in the fourth quarter. Here's all that you need to know about the game. So the Wizards did remain without Rui Hachimura and Thomas Bryan. Rui hasn't played at all this season due to personal reasons, though he does appear to be getting close to playing. Uh, Bryant hasn't played at all this season as he recovers from a partially torn left ACL that was suffered last January 9th. But the Wizards on Wednesday night did get back Davi Spurtons. Uh, Spurtons returned from a 10-game absence caused by a left ankle sprain that was suffered in a 118-111 loss at the Atlanta Hawks on November 1st. And Bertans in 19 minutes, 12 seconds off the bench, went one of nine on threes and 0 of one on twos and committed four fouls. So one of 10 from the field and four fouls. Uh, That right there was the game for the Wizards in a nutshell. The Wizards' three-point defense was bad as they allowed the Pelicans to go 12 at 29 on threes. The Wizards' three-point shooting was bad as they went just 7 at 31 on threes. And the Wizards committed 19 turnovers, marking a fourth consecutive game in which the Wiz committed at least 17 turnovers. And the turnovers were a big topic after the game. The Wizards committed 13 turnovers in just the first half, including eight turnovers in just the second quarter. Head coach Wes Unsell Jr. during his post-game press conference. The turnover was early, uh, really, really put us in a bind. Um, and we knew going in, if we, we turn the ball over against this team, that they're, they're going to get out and run. That's when they're at their best. Uh, so not taking care of uh, the ball and valuing possessions. Um, now you're on your heels defensively. So it's twofold. Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't think our, uh, our effort, I thought, was, was decent um, for the most part. Uh, there were some lulls, but not a lot of purpose in what we were doing. All right, interesting. West Jr. right there saying that the Wizards weren't playing with much purpose. What did he mean by that? Uh, you know, I, I didn't think we were um, we were very organized. You know, I think uh, on, on either end, and, you know, some things that we've talked about uh, in shoot-around and obviously uh, leading up to this game, we've seen some of the similar stuff over the past three games. And we still yet didn't adjust and, and respond the way I wanted us to, to respond. 
No, you did not. Uh, Bradley Beal, another bad game for him on threes. He went 0-4 on threes. He did go 11-16 on twos, finished with 23 points and five rebounds in 28 minutes, 29 seconds as a starter. But how about this reveal from Beal during his postgame press conference? I mean, Coach, I mean, probably for the first time, Coach came in and cussed us the hell out at halftime and after the game. Like, and that's that's what we needed. Like, <laughs> It's a, it's a shame we didn't come out and give him more fire. Um, but, you know, the, the accountability is there. You know, we're, we're calling each other out. We're, you know, constructively criticizing each other. There's no point in fingering. It's nobody's fault. It's nobody's blame. Because we're all making the same mistakes. You know, it's not like just one guy is just doing the same thing. We're all kind of beating a dead horse right now. Um, so we got to be better. We, I mean, obviously it starts with yourself individually. We all have to look at ourselves and see how we can be better and you know we all have to bring a better care factor and energy to the game we have to create our own energy um and then ultimately you know come together and win that's that's all that matters you know it doesn't matter what's going on on the floor uh you know come together to get the win so west jr cussed out the wizards at halftime and after the game good for him you know it's hard to picture west jr cussing out the wizards west jr is so mild-mannered and soft-spoken publicly but good for him that he has that in him. You have to have that in you as an NBA head coach. I just want to know this. Did West Jr. at any point in his cussing out of the Wizards say, the damn Washington Wizards? The damn Washington Wizards. Yeah. Did West Jr. at any point in his cussing out of the Wizards pull a Stephen A. Smith? That's what I really want to know. But man, that was a really bad performance by the Wizards on Wednesday night. Spencer Dinwiddie, one of five on threes, finished with just 11 points, uh, did have nine assists versus three turnovers and eight rebounds in 24-35 as a starter. Montrez Harrell was good because, of course, he was. 23-55 off the bench, 10 points on four of eight shooting, and nine rebounds, including six offensive boards. But all of these guys were a part of this bad performance. Look, the NBA season is long. You're going to have bad games. What's concerning is that the Wizards have cooled off quite a bit since the hot start. Wizards have three games left on their four-game road trip, and the three games come over the next four days uh, at the Oklahoma City Thunder Friday night at 8, at the Dallas Mavericks Saturday night at 8.30, and at the San Antonio Spurs Monday night at 8.30. And let's talk college basketball before we call it a show. Thanksgiving week, the time for many tournaments across the country and really the world. Uh, Virginia earlier this week won the Roman Legends Classic in New Jersey with wins over Georgia on Monday night and Providence on Tuesday night. Meantime, we had Maryland and Georgetown playing on Thanksgiving night, thousands of miles away. Uh, Maryland in the Bahamas, Georgetown in California. We'll start with the Terrapins who won. Uh, they improved to 5-1 and one with an 86-80 win over Richmond in the Bahamas on Thanksgiving night to advance to the championship game of the Baja Mar Hoops Bahamas Championship Tournament. Terps will play Louisville in the Bahamas Saturday morning at 10. Uh, this win for the Terps over Richmond was yet another close victory and yet another come-from-behind victory. The Terps overcame an 11-point Second half deficit. Terps trailed early in the second half, 45-34, then ended the game on a 52-35 run. The theme for Maryland so far this season is that the Terps do mostly win, but man, (laughs) these victories are not coming easy. And maybe that's a good thing. You know, maybe this is making 
Maryland battle-tested, but to go through game by game, I mean, Terps and their 71-64 win over George Washington at Xfinity Center in College Park on November 11th, led by just two points at 66-64, with a little more than two minutes left in the second half, but ended the game on a 5-0 run. Terps and their 68-57 win over Vermont at Xfinity Center in College Park on November 13th, trailed by seven early in the second half at 39-32, but then won the rest of the game 36-18. The Terps then lost, uh, suffered a 71-66 loss to George Mason at Xfinity Center in College Park on November 17th. And then the Terps' most recent game prior to this game against Richmond in the Bahamas was a 69-67 win over Hofstra at Xfinity Center in College Park last Friday night. Terps in that game trailed by four points at 67-63 with a little more than a minute left in the second half, but then ended the game on a 6-0 run. So these games are all kind of following that same pattern. And in the case of the George Mason game, Maryland actually lost that game. Uh, As for this victory over Richmond in the Bahamas, the game really was a tale of two halves. Uh, Terps in the first half went just 3 of 10 on threes and 8 of 21 on twos and allowed Richmond to go 5 of 11 on threes and 13 of 24 on twos. But the Terps in the second half went 7 of 13 on threes and 10 of 13 on twos and held Richmond to 3 of 11 on threes and 9 of 19 on twos. Uh, Terps did a good job on Richmond's leading scorer, Tyler Burton. He finished with just 11 points on 0 of 2 on threes and 4 of 9 on twos. Burton entered the game averaging 19.8 points per game. Again, Terps held him to just 11 points. Terps head coach Mark Turgeon during his virtual postgame press conference on Thursday night. Whatever it takes to win. I'd rather be up at halftime and then play well in the second half and not make it so close. But it's who we are right now. Um, we started the game really stagnant on offense again, just really stagnant. And we worked on offense for three days, really hard, just trying to get better. Um, and, uh, you know, but we got to 87 tonight, which is a lot of points for us. Um, so, yeah, it was a great second half comeback. The guys showed me a lot about themselves tonight. And just, I mean, the, the, the effort that they played with in the second half was just terrific. And I know watching at home probably doesn't really – tell you the story. Yeah, you heard the Turge mention the Terps scoring as many points as the Terps scored. 86 points. That is a lot of points for the Terps in a game under Mark Turgeon. That has rarely happened in recent years. Maryland scoring 86 points in a game. Uh, leading the way for the Terps was Hakeem Hart. A great game for him. He went 4-5 on threes, finished with 24 points, 4 steals, and 3 assists versus no turnovers in 37 minutes as a starter. Eric Ayala, 3 of 8 on threes. He finished with 20 points, 9 rebounds, and 5 assists versus 3 turnovers in 35 minutes as a starter. The Rhode Island transfer and point guard, Fats Russell, uh, just 1 of 5 on threes, committed 5 turnovers in 29 minutes as a starter, but he went 4-5 on twos, finished with 15 points, 6 assists, 4 rebounds, and 2 steals. And remember, because Fats played at Rhode Island, he has a familiarity with Richmond. Uh, Rhode Island and Richmond are both in the A-10. The Georgetown transfer, the 6-11 big man, Kudus Wahab, played for just 23 minutes as a starter. We've been talking about that on the podcast, his lack of playing time. Uh, 23 minutes for Kudus on Thursday night. He had 13 points on 3 of 8 shooting and six rebounds. More from Turgeon at his postgame presser on Thursday night. We played a team that I thought played exceptionally well in Richmond. Um, Every mistake we made, which was quite a bit in the first half defensively, they made us pay. Um, It felt like every ball bounced to them and didn't bounce to us. Right when we cut to one, it just, it got, you know, we fouled three-point shooter three times. Um, 
it just was one of those nights you're like, are we ever going to get over the hump? And uh, the effort that our guys played with in the second half, really the last two and a half minutes of the first half got us back in the game. And then start of the second half was terrific. And uh, the effort was just off the charts. Um, guys battled. We got smarter defensively, um, you know, and really probably could have won a little bit easier, but we didn't do our job there late in press offense and at the foul line. Yeah, the Terps went to 6-9 and nine on free throws in the final minute of the game, but the Terps won. Georgetown did not. Uh, the Hoyas fell to 2-2, two and two, a 73-56 loss to San Diego State in Anaheim, California on Thanksgiving night in the Paycom Wooden Legacy Tournament. Uh, this was a late-night affair. The game started around 11.45 on the East Coast. And if you didn't stay up for the game, you didn't miss much. Uh, the Hoyas never led in the second half. They led by four points in the first half at 21-17, but then lost the rest of the game 56-35. Georgetown shooting was terrible. Uh, the Hoyas went just four of 20 on threes, went just 16 of 37 on twos, went just 12 of 18 on free throws. I mean, Georgetown couldn't make anything in this game. How about this? The Hoyas finished the game with six assists versus 15 turnovers. Uh, that's hard to do. Six assists for an entire game. And the Hoyas defense was bad. Hoyas allowed San Diego State to go 7 of 16 on threes, allowed San Diego State to go 22 of 44 on twos. Hoyas got outscored in the paint. 32-22. Uh, Aminu Muhammad, the five-star freshman, just one of four on threes. Did go seven of eight on twos. Finished with 20 points and four rebounds in 33 minutes as a starter. Point guard Dante Harris, just one of six on threes. Committed four turnovers in 35 minutes as a starter. He went seven of 11 on twos. Finished with 19 points, three assists, and two steals. Caden Rice, the graduate transfer from the Citadel, just two of seven on threes. Scored just eight points in 29 minutes as a starter. Donald Carey, 0 of 7 from the field. 0 of 2 on threes, 0 of 5 on twos in 32 minutes as a starter. He finished with four points, nine rebounds, and three assists. You know, Georgetown was great offensively in its previous game, the 83-65 blowout of Siena at Capital One Arena last Friday evening. Caden Rice in that game was a monster. He ended up going 7 of 10 on threes in the game, but no such offensive prowess from Georgetown on Thanksgiving night. Next up for the Hoyas, they'll face St. Joseph's in Anaheim Friday night at 9. All right, that'll do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Monday show, episode 196 will be a special Washington football team pregame show installment of the pod for Monday Night Football. Four and six Washington football team versus the three and seven Seattle Seahawks at FedEx Field Monday night at 8.15. I'll get into the latest on injuries for the game. I'm assuming we will have heard from Scott Turner and Jack Del Rio. The uh, post-practice press conference schedule is a little screwy uh, this week with it being Thanksgiving and with Washington having this Monday night game, but presumably we'll hear from Scott and Jack Friday or Saturday. I'll give you my rhyming keys for a Washington win and much more. Also, I'll recap college football week 13 with Maryland and Rutgers, Virginia Tech at Virginia and Navy at Temple. I'll talk Capitals, big weekend for them, home to the NHL-leading Florida Panthers Friday evening at 5, and then at the Carolina Hurricanes Sunday afternoon at 1. Caps and Hurricanes are tied for second in the NHL with 29 points. I'll talk Wizards as they try to get going again here. A Wiz will be at the Oklahoma City Thunder Friday night at 8, and then at the Dallas Mavericks Saturday night 
at 8.30. And they'll talk Maryland and Georgetown basketball as they conclude their Thanksgiving weekend tournament runs. Terps will play Louisville in the Bahamas Saturday morning at 10. Hoyos will face St. Joseph's in Anaheim Friday night at 9. Have a great weekend, and I'll talk to you on Monday. I just felt some trash at my feet. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com.